Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. In comedy, in a sense, anything goes, but it's a great forum for for releasing all the steam that's building up in our country. And the rule is, for me at least, um, it's open season on my own people. But it can be in bad taste. It can be in bad taste and not funny if, you know, you can come across as, as a jerk, as a bigot. Welcome to the True Fiction Project a podcast series that explores the origins of fiction. Every week, we begin with an interview, nonfiction, followed by a creative piece, fiction, inspired by something from the interview. The idea is to demonstrate, of course, that fiction is born out of our life experiences. Now, here's your host, storyteller, author, public speaker, health and wellness expert, Renita Hora. Hi, everyone. This is Renita Hora, your host for the True Fiction Project. And speaking of fiction, one of the greatest pieces of fiction that I particularly love is comedy, humorous fiction. I delve into that quite a lot. So I'm excited to have with me today Ethan Hershenfeld. He is an accomplished stand-up comedian and an actor. You've seen him on shows like The Blacklist and Boardwalk Empire and the recently released Red Notice on Netflix. But he used to be an opera singer. So lots to talk about. Ethan, welcome to the True Fiction Project. Great to have you here. And since we are talking about fiction and how it comes about from nonfiction, it's very intriguing to understand or to try and begin to understand how you went from opera singer to comedian slash actor. Tell us. Well, um, Thanks for having me on the show. Excited to be here. Um, I got into opera through musical theater, and I got into musical theater through acting uh, in school. So mm. for me, all of these things are part of the same bug, and that bug is like just wanting to be on stage and entertaining people. But what I noticed uh, really at an early age is that for me, the most fun thing to do as an entertainer is to get laughs. So, um, you know, I sang for a long time. I, and, uh, but one thing that was always missing in that um, world was uh, big laughs, spontaneous laughs. Opera is many things. It's beautiful. It's moving. It can be kind of funny, but it's sort of like opera funny is in quotation marks. They call them comedic <laughs> operas, but they're not actually funny. Um, comedic in that world really refers to that. It's like the comedies of Shakespeare. If the people get married in the end, it's the comedy. If they go to hell in the end or they die, that's the tragedy. So it's not comedy in the sense of big laughs. There's the occasional laughs in that world, but that's something I missed. So um, I had done a little bit of um, stand-up back in the late 90s. Then I spent uh, the better part of two decades as an opera singer, but I always was missing those laughs from, uh, from stand-up the spontaneous, the big laugh, that release of energy. It's, it's just very exciting and it's unique. So I ended up transitioning uh, back to that a number of years ago. 
And you're certainly not missing the laughs right now. I mean, you've played a lot of comedy roles, but you have your own debut comedy album, Thug Thug Jew. Very interested yes. in learning more about this because you've got <laughs> these amazing characters you play, an ethnic thug that you described. Tell us more. Well, um, yeah, so a lot of the roles I get cast in on TV shows, not all of them, but a lot of them are thugs, bad guys, or they look like mm. bad guys, or just the way I look uh, for the purposes of TV, which can sometimes lean towards the stereotypical. Um, uh, I look like someone who's suspected of being uh, a thug. So the, the title of the album, Thug, Thug Jew, comes from... Um, the kind of roles that I get cast on. I was a, a you know, a, a rabbi on a, an HBO thing r recently and uh, various other characters. But it's, it's usually, you know, an ethnic... Uh, I'm, I'm excited. Tomorrow I'm shooting an episode of, of, uh, of the CBS show Bull. And I'm not... It seems like I'm not, a, I'm not a thug and I'm not Jewish necessarily. So it's more of a... Uh, that's a stretch for me. Just a, mm. a regular guy. Um, yeah. Now, that's interesting to hear because, I mean, this happens a lot sort of in, in the performance world. It's like, you know, you are cast into a certain type of role and then yeah, that's where the word typecast comes from. And sometimes it works in the favor of a performer and other times it gets old. Where do you, what do you feel about that? Yeah, that's absolutely true. And I don't really... I don't have a problem with it for me because look, the the gold standard in TV is verisimilitude. They want the, the audience has to watch the show and get sucked in and just believe these characters. So I think 90% of what they're doing in, in the casting is looking for actors who look like the audience is going to believe this character looks like. Um, and so... Yeah, uh, actors have niches um, in, in TV. And so um, I, I, f I look a certain way and um, it hasn't gotten old for me because I get to play a variety of, well, you know, a variety of ethnicities and a variety of types, but within a, I guess, I guess you could say within a, within a certain box, Many boxes within a certain box. In an ideal world, yeah, I would be playing Romeo and I would be the romantic lead and I would be the action hero. Um, I'm saying in an ideal world, but honestly, for me, that's not fun. I actually really like playing the, the bad guy or the guy, the villain or someone who might be the villain. I just find that, that more interesting, something with an edge. That, that's, where the, that's what's interesting for me. Like, um, you know, I'm thinking of... Uh, I was going to say Othello, but they're, I, I think they're both kind of, both Iago and Othello. I, everyone's, I guess, kind of got their, their evil streak or their mean streak. Right. That, that, well. that makes it interesting. But um, I did once play Prince Charming in like a children's theater version about 20-something years ago at a, at a theater downtown in New York. And uh, I had a little kid come up to me. Uh, they wanted us to greet, greet. <laughs> they wanted us to greet the audience in costume afterwards because there were kids in the audience. It was. Uh, right. I was Prince Charming. What? What? What is that? Uh, is it Cinderella? Sleeping Beauty. Or is it uh, I, Sleeping Beauty? Oh, I know. I think this one was Cinderella. I'm pretty sure this one oh, was Cinderella. In okay. any case, I was a prince. 
And I'm out in the lobby and this dad with his toddler or like six-year-old daughter comes up to me and the dad says, honey, honey, this is him. This, this, this is Prince Charming. And she looked at me and she just basically started crying and said, that's not Prince Charming. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I really, I kind of wanted to say, you know what, kid, you're absolutely right. (laughs) I am not. So that was the first and last time I got cast as Prince Charming. Well, I am sure that you would make a very charming Prince Charming. But so you like characters that have an edge. I mean, flawed characters are really those that represent, you know, the people we see every day in our lives. And perhaps we as the audience members are just drawn to them. Is that? I think that's right. Yeah. Yeah, We're all flawed. Absolutely. Yeah. Let me be frank here. Also, I like to work. So I, you know, I, I do a lot of auditions. Sometimes I book a part. That's really exciting. Uh, many times you don't book the part. So I'm not, I'm not a, a person, I'm not an actor who is getting lots of scripts sent to me. And, and I can say, eh, nah, no, no, no. Oh, yeah, this one. I'm, I do a lot of auditions. And so like, it's a buyer's market from the point of view of the, of the, of the shows and the networks, the people who are casting. They, they have their pick. So they see a lot of people and they, uh, you know, I get the occasional offer. That's how it works. I look forward to someday being able to uh, cherry pick and, you know, turn down some offers. So why do you think that is, Ethan? I mean, we hear all the time there's this push for diversity. It's a focal point right now in the U.S. and in specifically in, you know, uh, the, the performance in the entertainment industry. If that's the case, why should it be a buyer's market when you are a unique kind of seller? Oh, well, okay. It's uh, there, there are two questions, I think, layered in there. One is just the, the sheer numbers of it. There are thousands and thousands of actors and thousands and thousands of really good actors who could do any, any one part. So that's just the fact of the matter. But from a, the point of view of diversity, um, yeah, I think in the theater, there's more room and effort to diversify casting. Um, but like I said, in TV, there, there are these, uh, I, I guess the audience has their, their biases and their expectations. Let's be frank. We live in a racist world. I believe mm-hmm. we live in a very biased, racist country. Uh, our country maybe is a little less racist than some, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's not great that, that, uh, often, uh, villains are written as certain ethnicities. That's terrible. Shouldn't be that way. And in fact, if you look at the fact that terrorism in the United States now is the purview of mostly young white men, that's who commits terrorism uh, in our country. Um, the, this, this myth of uh, Islamic terrorism or other kinds, of, right. that's not actually who's committing terrorism here. It's a weekly, sometimes daily thing here in America. We have white kids with guns murdering our fellow citizens. So, you know, uh, that, that's just the facts. Where, but TV, uh, the TV audiences and movie audiences have a bottomless appetite for stories about dark people being dangerous. Mm. That's, that's a sad fact. So, yeah, I mean, um, so in that sense, yeah, there are things I wouldn't play. I'm not going to play a... Um, uh, th- that kind of stereotype. In fact, I had an interesting conversation with a colleague, uh, a friend of mine, uh, who uh, 
who is um, from the Middle East and is a native speaker of Arabic. And I got a casting call sent my way for someone uh, speaking Arabic. And the person pitched the show as, I think it was a podcast, in fact, that was going to look at what they said in their pitch for the show was an episode about Islamic terrorism. Um, it focused on a particular uh, terrorist attack in, in, the, in, in the U.S. And I forwarded this to that friend of mine simply with the idea of this is an acting gig and I'm going to pass this to my acting, my actor colleague who would be great for this. And he wrote back to me and he said, Ethan, thanks, but I hope this is the very last time you ever send me anything with those words in it, Islamic terrorism. His point was, mm. I'm not doing those. I'm not interested in those. We've had enough of that. It's not actually, there's no such thing from his point of view as Islamic terrorism. There's terrorism and there's Islam. May they, might they intersect? Possibly, but it's not because of Islam um, any more than the, the, the kid in Michigan who shoots his classmates right. is doing it because he's Catholic or because he's Episcopalian. It's offensive. It's old. It's a cliche. It's dull as hell. And yet, as I said, there is an infinite appetite for it among audiences. So that, that's a bit of a conundrum. Yeah, absolutely right. Um, you're absolutely right, Ethan, because I think a lot of the roles that are uh, cast by TV networks really perpetuate this stereotype. Let me ask you then, since Ethnic Thugs is, you know, a role that you get cast in uh, fairly often, you say, mm -hmm. what kind of ethnic, okay, an Islamic terrorist is not okay, but what kind of ethnic thug is okay or is there a fine line between the two? Well, I'm happy to play a Jewish thug because, you know, it's just like as a comedian, you can, uh, you know, tell jokes about your own, your own people. I'm sort of joking because, you know, they're, they're terrible stereotypes against my people as well. So, um, but comedy is a whole nother world where you're, mm. you're getting laughs and allowing people to kind of unload all of this baggage around topics that are very charged. So it's a very healthy thing in the world of comedy. So that's something else. Um, it, it's interesting. Um, while we're talking, I'm thinking, you know what? I think I'm talking myself into retiring. So thank you. You've just um, opened up the, uh, <laughs> the, no, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, you know, this does get into that, that topic of that whole issue of cultural appropriation. So in fact, I have an audition tonight, right? When we're done. I'm going to self-tape an audition for another TV show where I am a, I'm a psychiatrist who it says he's of, um, of Arab descent and, uh, which there's nothing in the script that, uh, suggests that it's simply that's mm -hmm. who he is. And his name is clearly, um, from the Middle East, but you know, someone could say, Hey, ho, 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 what's this, uh, What's this white guy? What's this Jewish guy doing taking or trying to get this role? Like you should leave that for an actor from Egypt or from Syria or which, you know, I don't know that I could really argue with them about that. But mm. as an actor, I'm open to playing the parts that people see me as, as potentially doing a credible job uh, in playing. And in fact, isn't that the beauty of theater? And isn't that the beauty of 
performing arts in general. This, it opens up a world of empathy for the audience and for the performer to explore things that they don't get to explore in their real lives. So when we get too rigid about this idea, now this is a huge topic of cultural appropriation and mm-hmm. casting, but th- because of course, when, you, when you're talking about a, a group of actors and an ethnicity of actors who have very slim pickings because there's almost no roles that are being written for them, then of course it becomes uh, a question of, of being fair and opening up markets f- for those people to do their profession. If there's only one one role written for an Egyptian character and then it's taken by someone who's not Egyptian, I can see the argument. Um, Absolutely. That's not fair. On the so, other hand, what is what is theater? It's, you know, I saw one of the great things I saw, a, a, a friend of mine years ago, she did a one-woman show. She's a... Um, Kate Bloomberg was, was her name. She's a, an actor from South Africa, white, Jewish. She did a one-woman show in which she played 25, 30 different characters of all different ages, ethnicities, uh, accents, na- nationalities. And it was absolutely brilliant. I mean, no one would say, wait a minute, she, you know, she shouldn't do that show. Maybe they would, but I would disagree. So you've raised some very interesting points. You've talked about racism, cultural appropriation, and then there is political correctness. Now, as fiction writers, you know, a lot of this stops us. We, we got to be really careful what we write in books and scripts and, you know, roles that we mm-hmm. create to not be offensive. However, the reason I would love to talk about this a little bit is because as a comedian, these are almost points that you can use to develop comedy. So how do you do this in an America that is so conscious of these issues? So I th- you're absolutely right. Uh, I, you know, I'm, what I'm reminded of when you're talking about this is something just, I, was, I studied English and American literature in college, and I did a paper on Philip Roth when he first published his stories in around 1960, and he was at a conference and he was getting excoriated by the Jewish community. This was only 15 years after the Holocaust. And people were saying, how can you write these Jewish characters who are adulterers or who are uh, blasphemers or who are this? You know, you're, you're, you're not doing right by your own people. And his comment, I'm misquoting him, but he said, I'm not, you know, this character, I'm not writing about the Jews. I'm writing about this guy. I'm writing about right. this character. I'm not saying something about the entire people. In fact, I have a joke in my album that, that, that is right. I, now, I hadn't made the connection before, but I talk about going to a religious school, but I was an atheist. So, you know, I got into a lot of fights or as I called them, pogroms. That's the joke. So, um, and the rabbi said to me, um, the rabbi said to me, it's, you know, it seems like you don't like the Jews. And I said to him, no, no, I just don't like these Jews. So it was a joke about the, the article, the versus these and a little pogrom joke in there, but, but your your point about how do you how do you your question about how does one um, address these issues in a in a world and in a country that's so on edge about these issues uh, mm-hmm. in the in comedy you can do it and my, the, I think a general rule that I think most people would subscribe to is that it's totally fine to make fun of yourself and make fun of your own group and make fun of your family. When you start making fun in a certain way of another group, um, you got a problem on your hands, especially if you're if if it's a group that's been suffering. Um, the, mm. the you know the general rule is you don't punch down in comedy, so 
you don't, you know, I, I, I teach uh, comedians who are just getting going. I help them write their jokes and refine their jokes, or I help more established comedians develop more material and refine their material. And uh, it's just a rule of thumb. You don't, you know, you don't want to really be telling jokes about homeless people or mm. uh, anyone who's, who's really suffering. It's just uh, that, that can be mean spirited and not funny. Um, that's not, again, it's not a hundred percent rule. There might be a funny joke with a, an interesting take about a homeless person. I, I don't think I, well, I, yeah, there's a Norm Macdonald joke, which I've told before. You can look it up. Norm Macdonald has an amazing joke about a, a dog who's with a homeless guy. I won't repeat it. Uh, you should just look it up. But, um, so dog yeah, that's the answer. Guy. Yeah. Dog, homeless guy, Norm Macdonald. Google that okay. for a treat. Um, but yes, uh, in, in comedy, in a sense, anything goes, but it's a great forum for, for releasing all the steam that's building up uh, in our country. And uh, the rule is, for me at least, um, it's open season on my own people. But it can be in bad taste. It can be in bad taste and not funny if, uh, you know, you can come across as, as a jerk, as a bigot. There's, you know... Uh, unless again, unless it's super, super funny, like a guy like Don Rickles, great insult comedian. Although you look at some mm. of his stuff now and it's offensive. So right. times change. Lots to think about, lots to learn. Unfortunately, we're coming up to time. So there's so much I want to talk about. But before we wrap I up, really, I you... really ran my mouth there, Renita. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I, just, I just got going and I just ran my mouth. So no apologies. Worries. No worries at all. Could you tell us, Ethan, about some of your upcoming projects or, you know, other things that we don't know about, such as your comedy workshops or teaching or anything um, that we should know about you? Yeah, thanks. Okay, so so one really fun thing I, I shot just a few days before the pandemic really took off. So right at the beginning of March of 2020, I was in Los Angeles and I was shooting an episode of a, a series that's going to be on Peacock, which is an NBC uh related network uh, or streaming service. This is a series called Angeline and uh, it should be out in a few months. So look for that Angeline. Mm -hmm. um, and like I said, I'm shooting an episode of bull tomorrow when this airs, when, when your podcast is out, it might have already aired, but you can look Absolutely. for that. Um, okay. And please watch uh, thug thug Jew, the special, it is an album which you can get it streaming everywhere, but you can also watch it for free on YouTube. Please do that. Um, other projects. So, you know, I have the pleasure of every Thursday night, I, since the pandemic started, I've been a guest on, on the David Feldman show. That's a, it's a very interesting podcast. David Feldman, the host is a, an award-winning comedy writer and a very political guy. And, my father, who's a shrink, and I go on the show Thursday nights at 7, and we just have a, a half-hour chat about everything. So that's been really fun. So you can always catch us Thursday nights on that show. That sounds like a lot of fun. And, you know, again, talking about typecast, maybe there was a reason you were sent that audition for the shrink job, <laughs> for the shrink role. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. You look at you. That's right. Yes. I didn't even make the connection. I got a... I got a call my father for some insights into yep. the scene. Yeah, maybe he had something to do with yeah. it and you just don't know about it, so. <laughs> there you go, right. he's pulling strings. He's pulling strings. So 
you know, what we're going to do after we wrap up here is actually send this interview out to a fiction writer to see what they might pick up as inspiration. And the fiction writer will create a main character based upon something from this interview. My question to you to close, Ethan, would be if you could give the writer a writing prompt, what would it be? Mm. Well, it's funny. You're saying it now. And also when I started to tell it, I hadn't thought of that story in years. But when that little girl comes up to an actor and says, you're not Prince Charming, I feel like there's a good germ of some fiction situation there, an actor who is possibly frustrated that he's not Prince Charming. That, that, that to me was a, was a funny moment. Another moment to me, just if, if the writer wanted to look into the, my album, I have, I have a, a little series of jokes there. In fact, I just told one of them, the pogrom, that little pogrom mm-hmm. reference pogrom. is followed by a Charlottesville discussion of that, you know, that uh, Nazi rally in Charlottesville in 2017. I have some jokes about that, which that might be my favorite joke on that album. So in there, to me, it's an interesting and in fact, when I mentioned the Philip Roth story, the one that got him in trouble, there's one called The Conversion of the Jews, one of his first stories, which has a very similar milieu, which is a kid who is rebelling in a parochial school. So that, I would mm-hmm. say, the fiction writer, that, that's a nice kind of mud puddle to stomp around in. That is a great mud puddle. Now, I have to ask you one more question because you've just intrigued me. So if Prince Charming, uh-huh. the guy who was playing Prince Charming, knew that he could never be Prince Charming... Mm-hmm. My question is why? What is the answer that he knows that this little girl and the other people will never know, but he knows that, you know, it's because of this thing that he could never be Prince Charming? <laughs> okay. <laughs> from from uh, I love this. I love your whole show, this premise. Okay. So two ideas come to mind. One, he could be gay. Okay. So there's one. Uh-huh. Uh, although as an actor, fine. But Number two, he, it could be about that whole thing we were talking about before, that we live in a racist world, we live in a racist, mm. racist society. He's too, quote-unquote, swarthy to get cast as Prince Charming, and that's, his, that's the cross he bears. Um, or maybe, you know, if we're going even darker, maybe he's a, you know, maybe he's a serial killer as uh, a day job. He's just acting, mm. acting at night, so he... he but I don't know. That, that doesn't really make sense. That is um, great. I like that last one. Yeah. That fits right in. Okay. I don't want to give the writer yeah. preconceived notions, but that's fantastic. Yeah. Ethan, But that's thank also you the so Barry, much. the territory of ba- Barry that, oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. That, that, no, go that ahead. series, that Bill Hader series, which is brilliant. Barry, where he's a, he's a killer, but he's also an aspiring actor. It's a little bit in that, in that territory, which is hilarious and an amazing performance by Henry Winkler, the Fonz. As the acting teacher. Absolutely. Amazing. The funds. Amazing. Ethan, thank you so much for joining us on the True Fiction Project. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. And uh, I'm looking forward to seeing all of these upcoming shows and uh, finding you out there and uh, listening to you on the David Feldman show on Thursdays and having you back on this one. Thank you. Thank you, Renita. It's been a real pleasure. I really appreciate you taking some time with me. And, um, Hope to meet you in person sometime. And uh, if I'm doing comedy live in, in, in a theater or a club near you and the pandemic is waning, I'd love to get you some comp tickets. Oh, I would love those. I'll seize those in an instant. Thank you, right. Ethan. Okay. Okay. Thanks. That is Ethan Hershenfeld, an accomplished stand-up comedian and actor here on the True Fiction Project with me, Rindita Hora. 
And now to the premise of the True Fiction Project, which of course is to create fiction out of nonfiction. Wise Guy Charming. Written and read by Parker James. Ever since I could remember, I wanted to be an actor. To me, being an actor was better than anything. Better than the president. Better than being head of the family. And I mean, what could I say? The lights, the fame, and the chance to be anyone I wanted. It was like an allure unlike any other. The family would never understand. They were always wrapped up in the business and keeping control of the neighborhood. However, these big stars, they weren't like anyone else. They could crash any party to a standing ovation for the simple fact that they were there. They could double or triple park in the handicapped spot, and the old guys hobbling along would ask them to sign their walkers. You name a season, winter, summer, fall, it didn't matter. You could find them shutting down bars and clubs and causing all kinds of commotion. When some old nosy bag called the cops, these actors would get a personal escort back to their mansions from the chief of police themselves. This is all I ever wanted. Thinking with a family? That was nothing. I mean, I would be a nobody. Doing the same old boring job as a wise guy. Dealing high-end cars, pulling bank jobs, force any number of businesses under a thumb. It was as boring as watching paint dry. I knew deep down that couldn't be me. My cousin thought I was pulling jobs. I was actually going to act in school, working any form of extra role or stagehand I could find. Being a wise guy? That was nothing. No better than the common janitor working for a buck fifty an hour sweeping up some little brat's mess. However, being on the stage in front of the camera, having anyone and everyone buy you any number of things, this, this is how you make the people love you. Actors may move a little fast. That's only because no one ever got in their way. My father wouldn't understand my dream. He was a Jersey man, born into a Sicilian family. The business was a family affair, had been ever since I was little. I still remember every wedding, dinner, and sit-down my father dragged me to. The other monotony of it all felt like a punishment for something I hadn't even done yet. Half the time I snuck in copied play scripts stolen from the school library. The other half, I fell asleep right as some maid man from Brooklyn was flipping the table in some hissy fit over dope prices. Hell, I probably should have been diagnosed with a sleeping disorder by how often my father had to shake me awake. The minute I turned 16, he put me to work for the family. I was a driver for the few cousins with big enough balls to pull bank jobs. He said that his thinking was that a couple of good dude cops would never stop a brace-faced kid learning how to drive. The truth was that my father was trying to spark some kind of excitement or interest in the business. I was no better than a glorified taxi driver. Cops were easy to fool when you didn't give a rat's ass for the job you were forced to do. Cops never caught us, and no one ever got shot. Unfortunately, this snooze fest of an occupation only gave me more credibility in the family. By the time I was 20, I was rocketed up to be in charge of the extortions we were running in the borough. And let me be clear. Clearer than the crystal sitting in your grandmother's front parlor. This promotion might as well have been sorting the toothpicks by size and color in Vincent's restaurant. However, for a brief, fleeting moment, I had it all. Fame, power, respect. 
My secret life of theater and unpaid acting had finally turned into something. It all happened ten days ago, but I remember it like it was a week ago yesterday. By sheer chance, my boy Tony was a rare appreciator of the arts and had a vested interest in the local theater production company. I offered to keep an eye on the theater for him so he could spend a little bit more time with one of his favorite mistresses. What he didn't need to know was that I was actually trying out for a modern version of the classic Sleepy Hollow story. I mean, it was a chance of a lifetime. No way in hell I could ever pass this up. Sure, I was risking the family name, but what was I supposed to do? Go back to being a nobody, working the same boring job as a wise guy? With a great audition and a little help from Beretta, I landed the role that would take me places I would have never dreamed of. Anyone could see that the prince was charming. The only one for me. Was he uh, strong and handsome? Was he big and tall? There's nobody like him. Anywhere at all. The night of the show was perfect. I had told Tony to take the night off. After all, it was only a play, nothing I couldn't handle. And technically speaking, I never did lie to him. I told him I would be there to watch over it all. Tony didn't need to know I was starring as Prince Charming. There was a handful of talent scouts at some highfalutin art school in Manhattan in the audience. I was on edge. Never felt nerves like this before. However, this play was the best performance in my life. So well, in fact, the director had us go out in costume to have a meet and greet with the entire audience. And that's when it all came crashing down. Done some things I'm not proud of. Giving beatings was never something I enjoyed. Even more so when it's done with a flip-flop. My father thought I was belittling and only reserved for the worst of transgressions. For me, it was laborious and ridiculous. But what my father said went, and that was that. Back to the point. One day, this tailor living on our block, Mr. Scheinbach, decides he's done paying for my family's protection. See, this doesn't go down well. Next thing I know, I'm beating this man within an inch of his life with a leather sandal. He's bruised, bloody, and saying he'll pay up. Mainly just praying for this beating to stop. Out of the corner of my eye, I see his little girl. Chocolate milk in hand and tears welling up in her eyes. I don't think that's a face I'll ever forget. After shaking the last of the talent scout's hands, I see Mr. Scheinbach's girl. Tears were pouring out of her face as her mother was asking what's wrong. She takes one look into my eyes and she, she doesn't see Prince Charming. All she sees is a wise guy beating her father half to death with a flip-flop. One simple sentence, she burned down every single dream I've ever had of acting. You simply can't be Prince Charming, this little girl screamed while burying her face deep in the folds of her mother's dress. For me, that was it. If she could see me as I really was, then there was no way anyone else would believe me as a real actor. I was finished. And now, of course, I had to go back to my boring old job with the family. Oh, wise guys, huh? No more fame, no more respect. Just a regular schnook. Thank you for listening to The True Fiction Project with Renita Hora. Be sure to subscribe to the newsletter to receive more inspiring stories showing how fiction is born from our everyday experiences. For more information, visit www.truefictionproject.com.
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill.